I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 14 today. We have, of course, been seeing how these churches that Paul is writing to in this region of Galatia were starting to embrace a very serious error. Having begun the Christian life by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and having received the Holy Spirit by faith, they were now beginning to embrace this idea that they weren't truly in God's good favor until they had performed certain works of the law, like circumcision. And it may have seemed like a subtle matter to them, just a, maybe a small thing, but they were truly in this error returning to a form of legalism where their standing before God was no longer on the basis of God's grace received with an empty hand by believing in Christ. But rather, it was now being said that it required works of law in order to really bring that work to completion, in order to really truly be in God's good graces. They had to do various works of the law. Sometimes when we read in the Bible about the errors of people in the scriptures, uh, we can sometimes kind of roll our eyes at it. We see it coming and we think, oh man, here we go, Peter. And uh, or we read Israel again, you know, oh, they're doing it again and their disobedience. And we can kind of almost scoff at it uh, and, and sometimes maybe even think we're above it, perhaps. I hope we don't take that approach when we read uh, the book of Galatians and think about these Galatian churches. Because the reality is, in various ways, we must continually battle a drift toward legalism. There is a constant temptation to return to a legal pathway to a right standing with God. It could be through formally adopting and believing doctrines that are legalistic themselves. But perhaps more commonly, legalism rears its head simply in our own battles with sin, just as we seek to live the Christian life, with the struggle that we have to believe that the grace of God in Christ is sufficient for me, is sufficient to save me. The struggle to believe that God could truly truly set his love upon me before I am in myself lovable. And so we can end up laboring, often in misery, because we functionally start to approach God in this legal way, trying to make him love us, thinking that if I do the right things and if I do good enough, then I can have confidence before God. Then I can smile and lift my head and rejoice. But if I don't, then my head must be continually in the dirt. And the truth of the gospel that is preserved for us in Scripture and in Galatians brings freedom from this legalism. It teaches a different path, a saving path. In our texts this afternoon, as we look at verses 10 to 14, we see Paul as he continues his assault against the notion that our works contribute to our justification. The scriptures, God himself, through his word, 
would purge you of that notion. God would have you gladly and joyfully throw aside legalism. So as we come into verse 10 here, Paul is in the midst of arguing his point about justification by faith alone by appealing to the Old Testament. You remember if we back right up, um, Paul was making the case, he was saying that his gospel and his apostleship was given directly by Christ to him, uh, that he, he didn't get it ultimately from man, but directly from the Lord himself, and that when he did finally meet with the apostles, they, it turns out they were in agreement upon what the gospel is. But of course, Paul's not, only argument is not simply that, well, trust me, the Lord appeared to me and told me this. He also has been making his case from the Old Testament scriptures, that it too teaches that we are justified by faith alone. So he has uh, told us about, he has appealed to Abraham, as Harley preached last week for us, showing that the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in and through his offspring, was really ultimately a promise of the gospel, Paul says. And Paul says Abraham himself believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by believing the promise, by believing God. And now in verses 10 through 14, he gives another string of Old Testament texts that affirm his argument and disabuse us of any notion that obedience to the law is part of our justification. At least our obedience to the law being part of justification. So let's read, and I think we'll back up to verse 7 and begin there. So Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So as we work through verses 10 to 14, we're going to look at four ways to help fight off legalism. The first thing is to understand that all who rely on works of the law are under God's curse. Understand that all who rely on works of the law are under God's curse. I think this, certainly if we recall verse 10 here, it will help us when we want to drift in or are tempted to drift in towards legalism. So Paul again has affirmed that Abraham was justified by faith. And that all who believe today, as Abraham did back when he was alive, we are his spiritual offspring. But now in verse 10, Paul zeroes in on the opposing position to further show how, uh, how futile it is. He gives further reasoning as to why it is 
that the only instrument by which we are justified is faith. He says in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So he begins the sentence with this word for, which means he's giving further reasons, further support for his ongoing argument. Now he says uh, all who rely on works. Now the words rely on, those are not in the uh, original Greek text. It says, uh, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. And with these words that are supplied here for us by the ESV translation that I'm reading out of, uh, I think these are still helpful to us to understand the meaning here of what Paul's intent is, of what it is that he is getting at. Uh, He has referenced in the previous verse, in verse 9, which we read, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Now he says, but those who are of law, those who are relying on law for their justification, they are under a curse. If they're He says, all who are this way, all who are seeking a righteous standing before God by works of the law are under a curse, which is to say they are under God's condemnation. I argued back in chapter 2, verse 16, that when Paul uses this phrase, works of the law, he uses it to refer to any works of the law. His opponents, these Judaizers that are preaching this false gospel that the Galatians are tempted to believe, and some of them are believing, his opponents are arguing that the ceremonial law needs to be kept in order to be truly, fully saved. They were making circumcision necessary. But Paul broadens out from this, and he says that anyone, all who rely on any works of the law for justification, are in fact Cursed. It's quite the opposite of being justified. And this includes both Jews and Gentiles alike. Obviously, if we think of the Old Testament, we think of the Jews, we know how they failed to keep the law that was handed down to them. They had the written law of God and they failed to obey it. But we also know from Romans chapters 1 and 2 The scriptures make clear to us that even the Gentiles who did not have access to the written law of God still had the moral law written on their hearts. They still had a conscience, and they still today have a conscience, that they knowingly violated. So in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the written law, by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, the written law, they show that the works of the law, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So God has left witness to his law in the conscience of man. Man suppresses this truth. Man's conscience may be seared at some point, but no man has any legitimate excuse before God. A man's conscience, we just read, will be brought forward as evidence against them on that day of judgment. Evidence that they've knowingly violated God's law. They've knowingly sinned. And so everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, 
are under God's law and are thereby under its curse for failure to keep that law. Before we get further into why it is or how it is that relying on works of the law leaves us cursed, I just want us to let the clarity of this statement and the awful reality of this statement to just hang there for a moment and weigh on us for just a moment. Bringing works of the law into the equation when it comes to justification, bringing our works of the law into that equation is damning. It says here, for all who rely on works of the law for any part of it, you are under a curse. So I think this reality and understanding this reality will be clearly a help in avoiding and in battling legalism. Perish the thought that we would be under God's curse, that we would remain under his condemnation. Now, I do want to just notice here that while Paul is biting in his criticism to the Galatian churches, uh, he, he called them fools, called them foolish, saw last week. Uh, he doesn't pronounce an anathema upon these churches right away. He doesn't eternally condemn all of these people that he's writing to. He does have... Let them be accursed back in chapter 1. We saw that. But he's talking there about the preachers, the teachers of this false doctrine, those who refuse to be corrected and receive the truth of the gospel and instead are causing and sowing this division and this confusion. They've arrogantly rejected correction and are staying in their falsehood. Now, the implication, of course, is that if the people Paul is writing to would continue down this errant path and reject Paul's correction and embrace this false teaching, that these professing believers should not expect salvation, but rather he's telling them you're under a curse if that's going to be your hope. You're going to put your hope in your works. And yet Paul, throughout this letter, he's appealing to them as Christians who are in need of correction. And so I just I point this out to say that we do sometimes just need correction. We can begin to drift. Even genuine believers can begin to drift into legal ways of thinking. Uh, we already know Paul has mentioned the apostle Peter, who erred when he went to Antioch, and Paul had to confront him in front of everybody. We know that it is something a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can still battle with. And so if and when you might find in yourself legalistic tendencies, just confess this to the Lord. Be reminded that those who rely on that are under a curse. Reject that. Let this statement chastise you. And then put no confidence in the flesh and be reminded of what Christ has done for you. So understand that all who rely on works are under God's curse. A second way to ward off legalism is behold the high demand of God's law. Behold the high demand of God's law. I use that word behold intentionally. Understanding and amazement at the high and holy law of God is a tremendous aid against legalism. There there is an irony amongst legalists. A legalist will claim to have a high view of God's law, but in in reality, they actually have a low view of God's law. So the legalist will say, 
I have a high view of God's law because I'm saying you need to keep it, at least some of it, in order to be saved. So I have a high view. Whereas you, sola fide people, you can basically throw the law away and have nothing to do with it. You have a low view of it, whereas I have a high view of it because I'm saying you got to keep some of it at least in order to be saved. And that might sound plausible, but that is actually a low view of God's law because the legalist actually thinks that he can keep it and he can keep it in some way that is meritorious before God Almighty. The legalist fails to grasp that the law demands keeping the law in its entirety with continual perfection. So Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then in verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather... The one who does them shall live by them. So to put this simply, what he is saying is that if you want the blessing that the law holds forth, and you want that blessing by means of keeping the law, then you must keep the law perfectly. Otherwise, if you fail at one point, you suffer the curse of the law. And of course, what Paul is implying in all of this, the reason he can say that everyone who relies on the works of law is cursed is because nobody does obey the law perfectly. And this is why everyone who is relying on their obedience to the law to justify them before God is indeed under a curse because they don't do all things written in the book of the law. Now, how does he make this point? Well, he lays out for us here the principle of law. Law says, do this and live. If you do these things, then you will live. The one who does them shall live by them. That in verse 12 is a quote from Leviticus 18.5. The law says, don't just know the requirements of the law, but you've got to do them as well. Otherwise, if you don't, then you're cursed. Law holds forth Promised blessing for obedience, but it also promises curses for disobedience. The first Old Testament quote he gives there in verse 10 is from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, which is when Israel was at Mount Ebal, and they were reciting the promised blessings and curses that would come upon them as a nation if the nation either obeyed the Mosaic Covenant or the curses for if they failed to obey the law, the Mosaic Covenant. The people of Israel were to obey the Mosaic Covenant in order to receive the blessings promised in that covenant, namely, blessed life in the land of Canaan. And failure to do so, to obey, would result in curses coming to pass, climaxing ultimately in exile, in being punted from the land of Canaan, far from blessed life in the land of Canaan, if the curses came upon them, they would be removed and exiled from the land of Canaan. This is law. The Mosaic Covenant was not a law to be kept for justification. Rather, it was a covenant of works, a legal covenant for the nation that governed life in the land of Canaan. And Paul is 
appealing to Deuteronomy 27 here, and then Leviticus 18 as well, to show that it is not enough to simply know the requirements of the law, but the key is you have to do them. Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 2 as well. After showing how wicked and sinful the Gentiles are in chapter 1, he then turns to the Jews. Do you think you're better off simply because you know what the law is, yet you still don't do the law? So you're not actually better off. All are under sin. Paul is using these Old Testament quotations here to show us what law requires. Law requires obedience. And he is extrapolating out from the example of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant to say that if you want to earn the reward of life through law-keeping, then you'll have to obey perfectly because this is what law demands. James chapter 2, verse 10 For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Perfect obedience to the law is necessary if that's the way you want to try to attain justification. This is why in chapter 5 of Galatians, he will say in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you want to seek a righteous standing before God by obedience and law-keeping, then you are on the hook for all of it. Not just some of the ceremonies, but all of it, including the, the moral requirements of God's law. This is the demand of God's law. You recall Adam in the Garden of Eden? He had the moral law written on his heart. And he was given an additional positive law. He was not to eat of the fruit of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And did Adam obey that? Well, perhaps for a little time he did. But then he failed at one, what some might say honestly seems like a little point. He failed. I mean, it's not like he murdered Eve or something like that. He ate fruit of a tree. He fails at what might seem like one little point. And yet, God's absolute standard of righteousness was shattered by that one act. And a curse was placed upon Adam and upon all of his posterity and all of creation itself. The curse of the law came into effect because Adam failed the law in just that one point. If we want to go the law pathway, it requires perfect, complete, comprehensive, perpetual obedience. When we were in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at Jesus' teaching on the moral law of God. And how it is actually a reflection of God's unchanging perfection. The law is indeed holy and it is good for it reflects God's greatness and holiness and perfection. And if we would seek to measure up and to be righteous before God by obedience to the law, then we must be perfect as our Father is perfect. This is what Paul is getting at here. And so it's important we keep this high view of the law. If we lower it and have a low view of it, then we might begin to think, hey, maybe this is a pathway for me. 
But if we understand and have a high view of God's law, then we will understand it can't be a pathway for us to a right standing before God. But rather it is leaving us surely cursed for our failure to perfectly obey. Thirdly, as we war against drifting to legalism, see the distinction between works and faith. See the distinction between works and faith. In these verses, Paul is giving us two distinct and opposite pathways toward justification. Works of the law on one hand and faith on the other hand. Theoretically, of course, justification could come by works of the law, but because God's law demands absolute perfection without one single sin, and because we are indeed sinners, that pathway only ever leaves us cursed, which is what we just saw. We are fallen in Adam, and we are sinners in and of ourselves. And so this leaves us only one hope to be justified, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This distinction here between works and faith is also sometimes known as the distinction between the law and gospel, or between law and grace. And it is given to us, I think, very clearly here in verses 11 and 12. So let's start with verse 11. It says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Notice Paul says it is evident, it is clear, it is plain that no one is justified by the law. This is not an unclear matter in Scripture. Paul, Scripture itself, inspired by the Spirit as Paul writes this, is telling us that it is an evident matter. The New Testament only serves to further clarify what is there in the Old Testament on this matter. As he has already done, he has showed us this is the case with Abraham. He will continue in coming weeks as well to, to continue to argue from the Old Testament. But then Paul supports this claim here in verse 11 with this statement from Habakkuk 2.4, which says, The righteous shall live by faith. Now in Habakkuk's day, the Mosaic Covenant's curses were all coming to pass in very dramatic and drastic fashion. The Lord promised that Jerusalem was indeed going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. They were coming to be God's judgment upon the disobedient nation of Judah. And yet the righteous among the people were not those who are said to have attained righteous standing by law-keeping, but they are those who are of faith. They attained their righteous standing before God, as Abraham did, by faith, and they continue in that faith, not moving on from faith to try to establish their righteousness by law-keeping or something like that, like the Galatians were trying to do. The righteous shall live by faith. But Paul continues in verse 12, but, he says, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here is where this distinction between law and gospel or between works of the law and faith in the matter of justification, this is where this distinction becomes most pointed, sharpest, clearest. Paul says that the law is not of faith. 
And if we're justified by faith, then we're not justified by law. What he means when he says the law is not of faith is he is saying that the law is a different principle. Faith looks outside of oneself and one's own activities and one's own works, looks outside of oneself and looks to God and to God's Son, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing the righteousness that I lack is found in Jesus Christ. It is given, it is mine only by believing in Him. It is a righteousness given as a gift of God's grace apart from works of the law. It is receiving that righteousness as a gracious gift from God apart from anything I've done. It looks outside and looks to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. That's faith. On the contrary, the law is an entirely different principle. It holds forth promise of payment upon works rendered. Perfectly rendered. The law is not of faith. Rather, what is the law? The one who does them shall live by them. If you do them, then you will live. That's what the law is. It's a different principle than God's grace received by faith, by just believing in Christ. John Calvin writes on this. The contradiction between the law and faith lies in the cause of justification. The law is not of faith because it has a completely different way of justifying people. They are two irreconcilable pathways to justification. Another reformer, a man named Rudolf Gwalther, I'm very certain I'm saying that wrong, Obviously a German name, but he pastored in Switzerland in the 1500s. He said this regarding this passage. He says, in this verse, we ought to consider in what sense Paul says that the law is not of faith. When elsewhere, he says that everything that is not of faith is sin. And some people make this accusation, right? Well, you're saying that, that the law is bad and it's sinful and whatever. Some people even take Paul to be saying that. Is that what he's saying? Walther continues, this remark should not be taken to mean that the law in itself is opposed to faith or that faith excludes or condemns all works of the law. Christ, who is the foundation of our faith, did not abolish the law, but as its faithful interpreter, he cleansed it from the darkness and filth that the scribes had overlaid with it, it with. Therefore, what Paul says here must be restricted to the question of justification concerning which the law and faith have less in common. The law demands works and promises salvation to those who obey all its commands, whereas faith leads us to Christ alone and teaches that all hope of salvation for us is placed in him. That is the distinction that scripture makes. That is the distinction that our text today is making. When it comes to justification, the Judaizers were blending law and grace. They were blending faith and works. And what Paul is saying is that when you do this, when you blend the two, you obliterate grace. You make it now actually law. And therefore, you are now on the hook for all of the law. So there really is no blending, really, after all. 
if you know somebody who has celiacs and has it bad, the, the tiniest bit of gluten can destroy an otherwise gluten-free dish and cause all kinds of trouble for someone with celiacs. It doesn't take a lot. The noodles could be gluten-free, but if you just use a spoon that was used in a glutinous dish to dish it out, you've ruined the whole thing. It's no longer clean for them to eat. It's no longer gluten-free. I can't believe I just used that as an illustration, but <laughs> this is how similar to how bringing works of the law into justification turns gospel grace on its head. It is no longer a pathway of grace. It is no longer received by faith. It now becomes a legal pathway. And you cannot just add a little bit of law. You cannot just say, well, you just got to do your best. Because scripture reveals that if you go, as soon as you start down that law pathway, then you're on the hook for all of it. You have to now be perfect forever and always. There is no middle way in between them. There is no blending of the two. All that happens in that case is you destroy grace, you destroy gospel, you destroy faith, and you are on the path now to legalism. It is legalism. This distinction between law and gospel has been understood by Protestants as a basic key to sound doctrine. It's not a quirky sort of weird side issue, but a foundational one. It is not the imposition of Greek philosophy upon the text of the Bible. It's right here in these verses we're looking at. And it's throughout Scripture. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London, wrote, said, If men blend the law with the gospel, or faith with works, which is the same thing, especially in the area of justification, they will obscure the glory of redeeming grace and prevent themselves and others from having the real joy and peace from believing. They will also retard their progress in holiness. You see, a troubled conscience cannot be properly quieted unless the gospel is rightly distinguished from the law. On the other hand, there will be no troubled conscience to be quieted without the law. The law demands perfection, and so rightly it troubles our conscience because we don't live up to it. We don't do it. It troubles us. That's where the guilt comes in because we have fallen short of God's glory revealed in his law. It troubles the conscience. Gospel then comes in to say there is full and free forgiveness for that sins in Christ Jesus. There is a righteousness to be had apart from your works of the law to be found by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gift that God gives graciously to those who don't work for it, but who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the, the law troubles our conscience, what is our help in that? Is it, well, Jesus has died and he has paid for sins and that's good. And as long as you also then just do your best, then, and you believe in Jesus and you do your best, then you'll be all right. You say, well, that sounds fair. But then eventually the day comes where you say, have I, am, I, am I doing my best? Have I done my best? I'm not really sure I've done. I'm pretty sure I haven't done my best. I, what is my best? I don't even know what that is. And here comes the troubled conscience once again. 
When you distinguish the two, law and gospel, separately in this matter, then we truly can have a freed, trouble-free conscience. And even when we do sin and the law reveals that to us, and we are disturbed and troubled by that, we look away from our obedience to the law, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the righteousness that is ours as a gracious gift of God by faith, not my works, and we can rest, we can have an eased conscience, we can have hopefulness and confidence before the Lord. That's that's a big part of what is at stake here. It's not just we want to be nitpicky about our doctrine, but it has ramifications in the Christian life. We labor under the law and we think I'm not good enough. That's true. That's always true. If you ever thought at any point in your life you were good enough, you had a low view of the law and too high of a view of yourself. You were wrong. You were never good enough. Then how can we stand with any amount of joy, any amount of gladness at any point in our lives? Because of gospel grace in which we stand. Christ's righteousness credited to the believer By faith, not works of law. Properly distinguishing between faith and works, between law and gospel, in the matter of justification is so important and will help you in so many ways, including in your battles against legalism. Run from that legal path. When you feel the weight of the law condemn you, it's not that we say, well, no, I'm not really that bad. That's not, that's not our answer. Our answer is, yes, I am that bad. But that's not where my hope lies, in, in, in measuring up according to the law. And we look again to the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to the fourth point. I'm ahead of myself. In warding off legalism, rejoice in what Christ has perfectly accomplished. And Paul returns us to this in verse 13. The law thunders its demands and pronounces its curse upon all who fall short of it. Whatever will we do? What will we do with this troubled conscience? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ has dealt with the curse by taking a curse upon himself. The first Adam left us all under the curse of the law. We are born in sin. We commit sins in ourselves, in our own actions, our own thoughts. But the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, has stepped in and for us on behalf of all who are believing in him. He had the curse of the law poured out upon him as he became sin for us. And so he satisfied the law's demands against you. God's justice demands that you be punished for your sins, for falling short of God's law. And yet Christ has taken that upon himself at the cross. He has done it. That is finished work. That is what he declared as he was being crucified. It is finished. And Paul gives two purposes of this here in verse 14. Christ took this curse, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham, which was promised in Genesis 12, 
in which Paul said in verse 8, was the, is the gospel, was the gospel preached beforehand, this blessing doesn't come to Gentiles through making them Jews. It doesn't come to the Gentiles through circumcision. It doesn't come to the Gentiles through Moses. It doesn't come to Gentiles through keeping the law. It comes in Christ Jesus. It comes in the preaching of Christ Jesus, and it comes in believing in Christ Jesus. We receive the blessing of full and free forgiveness of sins as we believe in Christ and are united to him by faith. The blessing that would go out to all nations that God promised to Abraham goes out in the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not come to us through works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. A second purpose is given here, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The Spirit of God is given to believers by faith. Christ dwells in his people by the Spirit. This is something we've already talked about in Galatians. Paul has already made clear this is a gracious gift received by faith in verses 3 to 5 that was preached last week. Interestingly, at the beginning of verse 14, Paul says Christ took the curse of the law so that the, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. But then in the second half of verse 14, the second purpose, he, said, he broadens it out and says, so that we, he includes himself and the Jews, so that we, Jew and Gentile alike, might all receive the promised Spirit of God through faith. Again, not through works of the law. And this is what we, we saw. We read through Acts 11 earlier. Peter recognized that as he went to Cornelius and to the Gentiles, there was this incredible thing that occurred in which the Gentiles believed the gospel, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Peter preached Christ to them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And, and Peter notes there when he's defending what happened in chapter 10, in, in chapter 11, he's defending what happened. He says they received the Spirit when they believed, just as we did as well. They didn't receive the Spirit after they were circumcised and were keeping the law for a certain amount of time or whatever. They received the Spirit by faith. They're in. They're fully in God's covenant with Him. This is what Acts chapter 10 Peter goes to Cornelius, preaches the gospel, they believe, the Spirit comes down, and they, they speak in tongues. And, and this is where people err, and they think, well, well, then that must, that, that must be what has to happen every time somebody receives the Spirit. They speak in tongues, because that's what we see in Acts chapter 10. But this misses the, the significant moment in history and in redemptive history that is occurring in Acts and in Acts chapter 10. So you recall, the gospel would go from Jerusalem, Judea, still within the, the, the Jews, to Samaria, and then to the, to the ends of the earth, right? To all the nations. In chapter 8, the gospel goes to Samaria. Philip is there preaching. Peter is called to come, and he witnesses. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're, they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 10, why this you know, vision given to Cornelius, this Gentile, to summon Peter, and Peter goes. Peter is going as, a, as an apostle, as one of 
the Lord Jesus' apostles, the pillar and foundation of the church, with Christ as the cornerstone. And he goes to verify that what they have received is indeed the Holy Spirit. They have believed the gospel, and he now understands and sees. He had the vision of that, the sheet that comes down and all the animals, and God says, don't call you know, these, these animals unclean. And he realizes this means he is to go to the Gentiles and not quibble over food laws and ceremonial laws. But they believe in the gospel and he comes to understand that they receive the spirit. They're full members of the church by faith alone, not by becoming Jews. And how would he know for sure they've received the Holy Spirit? There is this dramatic display of this speaking in tongues and so on. It is a very, very much a unique moment in the history of the church, in redemptive history. Confirmation, Gentiles enter by faith and not by works of the law and certainly not by keeping the ceremonies or by circumcision. This is the same kind of thing. This is what Paul is talking about here. We might receive, we, Jews and Gentiles alike, everyone who believes, the promised spirit through faith. There is no distinction here between Jew and Gentile when it comes to justification. Both are under the curse of the law and both are redeemed from it through Jesus Christ alone. It's the only way. While the Jews had the promise of the gospel passed down to them through Abraham and others, it is now proclaimed to the world in its fullness in the preaching of Jesus Christ. And the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life is received by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. And all who receive the Spirit of God do so through faith in Christ Jesus. Works do not accomplish this. Paul speaks of this redeeming work of Christ here, this purchasing of cursed sinners as a completed act. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redeemed, it's done, it's finished, it's completed action. This is precisely what it is. It's accomplished. Our salvation comes to us in Christ Jesus, who is apprehended not by our works of the law, but by faith. This is the grace of the gospel. It is truly grace. God, as scriptures say elsewhere, justifies the ungodly through faith. Not after we've made ourselves godly or godly-ish. Because Christ has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation through his obedient life and his death and resurrection, we truly stand before God at peace with him on account of Christ Jesus. This is where the troubled conscience needs to land and find rest. So throw away that legalism. Run from it. Be on guard against it. And lift your head to behold the one who took the curse of the law for you. And let God be glorified in this redemption. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for good news. We are thankful for your mercy and your grace that we, by definition, do not deserve. 
Your law thunders and reveals to us our sinfulness. And we confess that to you. Father, may we not be those who would hide from the search, the searching law of the Lord. But may, may we be those who would gladly live in the light and have your law expose wherever we fall short of your glory, knowing that we are not thereby condemned because we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ the righteous. Father, we deserve your curse for our sins. So we rejoice in the fact that you have sent your son to take that curse for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be guarded against our drift into legalism. Father, it's so easy to revert to that kind of thinking. Father, I pray that you would purge us of that that we would certainly be sensitive to our sin and confess it and war against it, but that we would still lift our head and rejoice in your salvation that is full and free in Christ apart from our works. Father, we're thankful that you promised to complete the work that you begin in your people. For the other graces that come to us, Father, we're thankful for your word to us. God, I pray that every person here, young and old, would rest completely in the Lord Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, no hope in any works of the law. Father, we pray that you would bless us and encourage us. I pray that you would renew joy and hopefulness in our souls today and as we go from here through this week. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.